Welcome to Undistracted Walking by Matthew Beaumont. This audio piece will guide you on an aimless walk around Dublin or wherever you may be. Please stay alert and be aware of your surroundings and of other pedestrians, observing social distancing regulations at all times. Pay particular attention to traffic if you're crossing a road. We suggest placing your audio device in a pocket or safe place. You may pause the playback at any time, but it is recommended that you listen to the whole track from beginning to end. This recording is part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which is generously supported by Dublin City Council, the Arts Council, and with funding from the Galway 2020 programme. Hello, my name is Matthew Beaumont. I'm a professor of English literature and the author of a new book entitled The Walker on finding and losing yourself in the modern city. I live and walk in London and in all sorts of other cities. Finding and losing yourself in the city. The two activities are closely related, I think. To find yourself in the city, it seems to me, you have to lose yourself in the city. In a technology-driven culture like ours, it's all too easy to find your way through the city. You simply tap your destination into your smartphone, then add your point of departure, and within less than a second, you'll be directed from A to B in the most economical manner possible, whether you're on foot or in a car. But in traveling from A to B, commuting through the city, you fail to see the points in between. You reduce the city to a one-dimensional city. My book is an argument for what Charles Dickens in the 19th century called going astray. Let's risk getting lost. It might be the only means we have of finding ourselves in the city. Let me start, though, by addressing the contradictory position in which, from the outset, though unintentionally, I've trapped you. This podcast is an attempt to persuade you to walk without distraction through the streets and thoroughfares of Dublin or of other cities, opening yourself up to the city's ceaseless, kaleidoscopic stimuli. But the podcast is itself, of course, a form of distraction. My more or less polemical aim is to persuade or remind you that when we walk through the city with our smartphones in front of us, emailing, texting, talking, and yes, listening to music and podcasts, we're drastically impoverishing our relationship to the richness of metropolitan life. So, this is an audio piece that, paradoxical as it might sound, and unhelpful as it might seem, guides you on an unguided walk. And that, with a pained sense of the irony, distracts you in its attempt to get you to stop being distracted. You'll have to live with these contradictions, I'm afraid. But life in the city is all about living with contradictions, with conflicts and concussions. So it's not something I suspect that you're ill-equipped to do. All the same, let me urge you once more when listening to this podcast to take care on the streets as you negotiate the distracted and undistracted states of which I'll be talking, as you live the contradictions. What does Stephen Dedalus say to Bloom in Ulysses, echoing an ancient Irish ballad? Please forgive my pronunciation. Shul, shul, shularun, shul gashuka, agashul gakun. 
Walk, walk, walk your way. Walk in safety, walk with care. Let me begin with some meditations on the aesthetics of walking in the street, and in particular, on the literature of walking in the street during the 20th century. Then I'll go on and reflect on the politics of walking in the street in the 21st century. As I do so, try to look around you. Try to observe the life of the streets. Try to be sensitive to its rhythms and rhymes. Insofar as you can, with me siphoning a stream of my thoughts into your ears, open yourself up to the teeming life of the metropolis. Read the faces, the physiognomies of the people you pass. How do they look? How do they walk? What does how they look and how they walk tell us about who they are? And every single fellow had a different way of walking, Joyce writes in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. In Nadia, André Breton's great surrealist novel of 1928, his autobiographical narrator at one point describes bringing a pile of books to a bar where he's made an arrangement to meet Nadia herself, who is fast becoming the object of his strange, if not obsessive, libidinal and spiritual investments. This pile of books includes a copy of Les Pas Perdus from 1924, the Lost Steps, Breton's first collection of essays, which he no doubt brings, along with the first manifesto of surrealism from the same year, in an attempt both to educate her and aggrandize himself. Lost Steps, Nadia exclaims on seeing its title, but there's no such thing. There's no such thing as Lost Steps. If one were to search for the principle that epitomizes what might be called modernism in the streets, one could probably find it in this exclamation. It informs the writings of all those 20th century authors, including Virginia Woolf and of course, James Joyce himself, who are committed to walking as a socially and psychologically meaningful activity. Those authors, that is, who consistently sought to make the cities with which they were familiar seem new or strange by traversing them aimlessly sometimes desperately on foot, in a state of heightened susceptibility to the relentless stimuli of the streets. But modernism in the streets is also a doctrine, if I can put it like that, which resonates almost a century later in the cities of today. Certainly, it's the article of faith according to which, as a committed, even devout pedestrian, I like to live. No walk as far as I'm concerned, is ever wasted. In contrast, for example, to a car journey. Car journeys often feel wasted. In a city, especially one dominated by cars, by individualistic rather than collective, private as opposed to public modes of transport, it is walking that habitually makes me feel alive. It makes me feel both vitally connected to the city's ceaseless circuits of energy and at the same time, delicately detached from them, stimulant then and narcotic. In the 21st century, in cities that are the site of acutely disorienting cycles of creative destruction, where pedestrians are increasingly inured to the environment they more and more mechanically inhabit, not least because of that dependence 
on the technology of smartphones, about which I've already complained. We need another modernism of the streets. And we need to celebrate some of those embattled individuals for whom, in the 19th and the first half of the 20th centuries, at the high tide of industrial modernity, this activity is a sort of spiritual imperative, a vocation. There's no such thing as lost steps. Naja does a lot of loitering on the streets of Paris, so her reaction to the title of Breton's book, which I take to be spontaneously triumphant rather than merely defensive, is understandable. If you wander around the city or hang about at street corners, things happen. Of course, people might think as a result that you're a pimp or a prostitute or some other undesirable, and if you're a woman, you'll be especially susceptible to demeaning assumptions of this sort. But things still happen. If you're fortunate, in fact, you might encounter a surrealist, as Naja does, or 30 or 40 years later, a situationist. These avant-gardists are committed to the idea that it is the street above all venues that provides what Breton, in the essay that opens Les Pas Perdus, calls the surprising detours that shape a life in the conditions of capitalist modernity. We need to be open to surprising detours. The street, with its cares and its glances, was my true element, Breton declares. There, I could test, like nowhere else, the winds of possibility. The street, site of the most routine practicalities, such as commuting and shopping, is also a social laboratory in which all sorts of utopian possibilities can be tested. The street is the domain of the trivial, but as the etymological origin of this word suggests, derived as it is from the Latin for a place at which three roads meet, typically at the edgy, unpredictable margins of the city, where immigrants of all kind congregate and circulate. It's also a site of dynamic social experiment. It's a point of intersection, crisscrossed with restless feet, which bristles with creative possibilities for collective life. Breton, it can safely be assumed, agrees with Naja that there are no lost steps. For her, as he succinctly formulates it in a sentence that the critic and philosopher Walter Benjamin later cited as the epigraph to his essay on Marseille from the late 1920s, the streets are the only region of valid experience. La rue pour elle seule champ d'expérience valable. And walking, implicitly, is the only valid means of traversing this region, or better, field of experience. It's surely important, paradoxically, not to erase the ancient pastoral associations of this phrase. More specifically, that errant, meandering form of walking that's often classified as wandering, as going astray, is the only valid means of traversing this field of experience. Like other surrealists, and indeed other modernists of all kinds, including Joyce, Breton believed that the footstep, as the critic Michael Sheringham puts it in a phrase to which I'll return, is the emblem of the free every day. The footstep is an opportunity to escape the logic of abstraction, the logic of exchange value, 
that is constitutive of those modes of transport with which, in the industrial metropolis, the walker must compete in the streets, from automobiles and buses to trains, and not excluding motorized scooters. Every footfall then, in contrast to the revolution of a set of wheels that travels along roads or tracks, is an adventure, a flight. It is open to those surprising detours. And at the same time, it is a faint imprint on the pavements and other surfaces of the city of these necessarily individual escapades. There are no lost steps. In French, the phrase pas perdu, lost steps, recalls the phrase salle des pas perdus, a common expression, if a peculiarly rich one, which refers to the waiting room of a railway station. At once drearily prosaic and poignantly poetic, it evokes the aimless, restless pacing of those who kill time before the departure of their train, tracing a circular, almost self-canceling movement that collapses walking into waiting, the active into the passive. But the phrase les pas perdus suggests too the idea of the not lost, les pas perdus. That is, the phrase also means those who aren't lost. It connotes the unlost. Breton's essay collection, Les Pas Perdus, is about an intellectual and spiritual elite or elect, Apollinaire, Duchamp, Jarry, Lautremont, Rimbaud, Vacher. This elect, moreover, which is comprised of the not lost or the sort of saved, is implicitly recruited from the ranks of those who aimlessly pace the streets in pursuit of adventures. Wanderers. For Breton and for friends such as Aragon and Philippe Soupeau, themselves the authors of fine surrealist novels driven by the logic of what the situationists will subsequently call the derive or psychogeographic drift, People who loiter or pace or wander are, precisely, not lost. On the contrary, they're preoccupied, consciously or unconsciously, with finding themselves. Finding themselves through losing themselves. And they do find themselves. In contrast, for example, to the inhabitants of that infernal, cylindrical Salle des Pas Perdus, at the center of Samuel Beckett's late novella, The Lost Ones, where the tortured relationship between waiting and walking acquires both mathematical and mythical overtones. Beckett's vision is shaped in part by Dante's account of the dead massed on the banks of the Acheron in the third canto of the Inferno. Perhaps it's also a recollection of the night he spent in the waiting room of Nuremberg Station in 1931 an incident that informed a scene in his novel, What? Certainly, it is a vision of the damned. Abode, Beckett writes, where lost bodies roam, each searching for its lost one. Breton's more redemptive vision is of the not damned, those like Breton who inhabit the immense Salle des Papels du that is the metropolitan city, might look like lost bodies, lost souls, but they're secretly the chosen ones. For they discover the marvelous in the everyday, reveal enchantment in the disenchanted spaces of urban life, redemption in everyday forms of perdition. 
No doubt there are lost souls in the city, abandoned shoes just as there are discarded gloves, such as the one Breton's autobiographical narrator fetishizes in Nadja. But there are no lost souls. The street redeems everyone. Indeed, its least bourgeois inhabitants, the bohemians, the bums and criminals, are for Breton and the other surrealists, its saints and martyrs. In the city then, for the surrealists and other modernists of the street, as I'm calling them, every aimless step counts and counts precisely because it cannot be counted. The more aimless, the better. It is the lost steps that are not lost. For the modernists of the street, lost steps are paradoxically unlost. For them, it is the steps that trace a specific prescribed trajectory that are in contrast lost. In the 20th century then, those I'm calling the modernists of the street were in some quite conscious sense, undistracted walkers. They cultivated an attitude of idle but attentive curiosity in relation to the environment they traversed on foot. In the 21st century, by contrast, all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, have unthinkingly become distracted walkers. Pause for a moment on the street. Look about you. How many people, at a glance, have inadvertently closed themselves off to the city? How many are using their phones in one way or another? Today, the phrase distracted walking denotes the widespread practice among pedestrians, sometimes dubbed smombies or smartphone zombies, of steering through the streets and crossing roads while using handheld electronic devices. There are YouTube sites on which you can laugh at the pratfalls of people using phones on the streets. They collide with lampposts and with other people. They fall into manholes. Or seriously though, the practice of distracted walking routinely causes fatal traffic accidents. In the US, the National Safety Council has indicated that there, nearly 6,000 pedestrians were struck and killed by motor vehicles in 2017. It's a number that seems to be rising each year, at least in part because of people's dependence on using their smartphones in the streets. But distracted walking has other less dramatic effects. In the first instance, it insulates the individual pedestrian from the sensorium of the city, impoverishing their everyday experience of its physical and social life by funneling their attention through the screen. This screen, it might be claimed, serves as little more than a portal into the virtual space of what Guy Debord, the situationist, once described as the spectacle, a regime of commodity relations that he summarizes as capital to such a degree of accumulation that it becomes an image. The spectacular virtual space of the smartphone screen, whether it functions as the domain of work or leisure, of production or consumption, or whether it dismantles precisely this distinction, is structured by the profit motive. The addiction to distraction to which the German thinker Siegfried Krakauer alluded, which fills the working masses day fully without making it fulfilling, as he put it, here reaches its apotheosis. 
the form of free time busyness, Krakow continues, necessarily corresponds to the form of business. Busyness, business. Pedestrians' use of their handheld devices in order to send emails or texts conforms exactly to the commodified logic of the society of the spectacle in its latest phase of development. If the flaneur or stroller, according to the 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire, was a kaleidoscope gifted with consciousness, then the distracted walker is a smartphone endowed with consciousness. What are the consequences of this conditioning for the lives of individuals and collectives in cities today? The urbanist Adam Greenfield has recently argued that when someone moves through the world while simultaneously engaged in some remote interaction, the two spatial experiences, one actual, one virtual, compete directly with one another. Only one mode of spatial experience can be privileged at a given time, he explains. And if it's impossible to participate fully in both of these realms at once, one of them must lose out. Inevitably, Greenfield insists, it's the actual that in these circumstances capitulates to the virtual. The example Greenfield offers, though he doesn't use the term, is that of distracted walking. And I quote from him. Watch what happens when a pedestrian first becomes conscious of receiving a call or a text message, the immediate disruption they cause in the flow of movement as they pause to respond to it. Whether the call is hands-free or otherwise doesn't really seem to matter. The cognitive and emotional investment we make in it is what counts. And this investment is generally so much greater than that we make in our surroundings that street life clearly suffers as a result. Street life suffers. The community of people on the street, even if this amounts to little more than the sum of those individuals that happen provisionally to be present in its precincts at a particular time, is undermined by the introversion fostered by those virtual spatial experiences promised by smartphones and other mobile devices. The collective life of the street is thus fatally vitiated, undermined. Staring at a phone, people fail to notice the increasingly authoritarian mechanisms through which the state and various private interests police their activities as citizens and monitor and manipulate them as consumers. They become the 21st century equivalent of what 19th century Parisians knew as les badauds, those onlookers or gapers whose gormless attitude to events taking place in the streets, including traffic accidents, was credulous and irredeemably passive. Except that where Le Bado was senselessly, unreflexively fixated on actual physical events and often spontaneously coalesced into crowds because of the spectacle, distracted walkers are senselessly, unreflexively fixated on virtual ones and remain almost completely atomized. No doubt this makes today's pedestrian monads who only seem spontaneously to form collectives when, with sociopathic calm, they stop and use their phones to film some horrifying drama as it unfolds on the street, even more susceptible to more or less covert forms of manipulation than their Victorian predecessors. 
Greenfield usefully lists some of the networked information gathering devices, as he calls them, that in addition to CCTV, which is a comparatively, indeed deliberately visible presence on the street, have already been implemented in public space. And I quote from him again, cameras, load cells and other devices for sensing the presence of pedestrians and vehicles, automated gunshot detection microphones and other audio spectrum surveillance grids, advertisements and vending machines equipped with biometric sensors, and the indoor micro-positioning systems known as beacons, which transact directly with smartphones. In these and other more or less surreptitious ways, the contemporary streetscape, like our homes and our bodies, has become comprehensively instrumented, Greenfield says. To distracted walkers, no doubt, the intrusive devices listed here are redolent of a more or less distant, dystopian future rather than the hidden matrix of everyday life, commodified and instrumentalized as it is in the present. But it is our reality. Pause again and look around you. Scan your immediate environment for CCTV cameras and other devices. Surveil the surveillance. Pedestrians' cognitive and emotional investment in the virtual domain, I think, has grave social and political as well as aesthetic implications. It desensitizes them to the latest modes of surveillance. It also prevents us from perceiving the insidious ways in which physically, legally, and symbolically, our cityscapes are currently being altered and appropriated by capital. Distracted walkers insulate themselves to potentially calamitous effect at both an individual and a collective level, not only from its politics, but its economics. When we use our smartphones as we circumambulate the streets, perhaps simply in order to navigate them with a virtual map, we fail to notice the ways in which public space is covertly being colonized by corporate interests and reinvented as an archipelago of private spaces to which ordinary citizens have at best limited access. Recently, as the urban anthropologist Seth Lowe summarized it, and to increasing extent, the boundaries of what is private or public have become less clear, and increasingly incursions by privatization and other neoliberal practices have been transforming public space, placing it back in corporate or commercial hands. There is a sense then in which the steps traced by distracted walkers in cities today, insofar as they're rendered automatic or semi-automatic by a persistent displacement of mental attention from the physical to the virtual, do entail a serious cost. Those footsteps, to paraphrase Sheringham, are emblematic of the unfree every day, as opposed to the free every day. Truly, they are lost steps. We need then to resist the sorts of habit that deplete our experience of the city. We need to learn to walk undistractedly. Start by turning off your phone, not immediately. Give me one more minute. Once it's off, recall the modernists of the street from Breton to Beckett and Joyce. 
and consciously cultivate an attitude of active curiosity to your immediate environment. Look up, look down, look around. Commit to noticing two or three things you'd never have noticed if you'd been looking at your phone. Savor them. In its etymological sense, to commute means to transform. When we're commuting, commuting through the streets, let's use this apparently inconsequential everyday experience to commute ourselves. Let's be open to the ceaseless stimuli of the city. When you're on the streets, don't email or text or even make that phone call to your mother you've been meaning to make for the last four or five days. Don't use a virtual map. Instead, go astray. Get lost. It's the only chance you have of finding yourself in the city. Go on, get lost. Now turn off your phone.